Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast this week. Well, rich and poor, male and female, north and south, young and old, pay gaps seem insurmountable. We can try and solve the gender pay gap by, for example, insisting there's a set ratio of women in key roles and that the pay is the same irrespective of gender for the same job. But does it work? And in any case, those approaches don't work when you're trying to solve the rich-poor gap. For that, you've got to pay the poor more and the rich less. But then people start arguing that you are disincentivizing the desire to make money. Apparently, the rich don't want to be rich if there aren't enough poor people to make them feel good about their lot in life. Today, we look at the pay gaps and how to fix them. That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Now, did you know in the UK, there's a government website where you can plug in the name of a company and you can find out what the gender pay gap is. So for the BBC, for example, for every hour women worked, they earn 93 pence for that hour for every one pound that men earn. For BP, it's 80 pence for every pound a man makes. Uh, Genderpaygap.service.co.uk, if you want to have a go and a bit of fun with that one. In the UK as a whole, men earn an average £555 a week last year, but for women, it was just £370. Now, that is not the case everywhere, because my wife is definitely the breadwinner, but maybe... That highlights another aspect of pay gaps. What about the age gap? Because I'm older and youth unemployment is a travesty. It's over 10% for the UK and less than 3% for those aged 25 to 49. But for women over 50, the unemployment rate falls to 2.2%. Not so for men. It's close to 3%. So in fact, older men are worse off than older women, it seems. And in those older age groups, the unemployed are far, far more likely to be out of work for two years or more, basically written off by employees, in other words. And obviously, it also depends on where you live. If you're in London, you'll earn £727 a week. In Huddersfield, where you need to keep the heating on all day uh, for a big chunk of the year, uh, you'll earn just uh, £424. That's less than 60% of the London salary. So, Steve, we are seeing a huge variation in wealth. What what kind of damage can be done to an economy when you've got this big variation in income by all of those aspects I've talked about? And is it realistic to expect that we're actually going to be able to correct some of these differences? Yeah, I mean, we, I think we have made some headway compared to uh, much earlier days. I mean, I, I remember uh, vividly because I was actually dating a nurse at the time this happened uh, back in Australia, the, uh, the pay gap between doctors and nurses was astronomical. And the reason was the nurses were still being paid as if they were apprentices. And uh, so they were getting wages which were about, um, you know, even compared to sales assistants, they were getting a lower pay than sales assistants. And because they're working in industry where if you don't, if you don't, um, you know, turn up for work, there's a possibility somebody's going to die because 
know, the nurse didn't change the bra- the, the tubes or whatever else. Uh, they they never had the industrial muscle to go on strike, mm. and they just got worse and worse and worse. And then just when I was dating this particular nurse. Uh, I don't have play any any take any claim for this uh, ha- actually happening, but they decided, bugger it, we're going on strike, and they got it. They actually literally, I think, pretty close to tripled their wage. So, uh, but it's, it's still, of course, once that was done, uh, they, they they came much closer to that. They certainly got better than sales assistants, and they got closer to you know a, a reasonable gap between themselves and and uh, and doctors and so on. But, but that's uh, isn't it where we've seen it corrected, isn't it? Isn't it happening in the public sector by and large, but not happening in in the private sector? So it, it's easier, isn't it? The government can just say, "Oh, we need to do something about this, so we're going to push wages up." And let me give you another example similar yeah. to that. Is uh, if you look at uh, you know we're, we're getting more people educated, that's mm. seeing more women and ethnic minorities uh, being being educated, but uh, more than half of uh, of women work in the public sector compared to uh, just 10% of white males working in the public sector. So it, it seems like the public sector is doing all the hard yards here. We may be getting more educated women, but those educated women are working <laughs> working in the education sector, educating other women to become educated, but not, not really affecting the rest of the economy. Yeah, I mean, it, it's... it's uh, the, the, the... What clouds our minds, I think, is the, the neoclassical uh, c- concept that you get paid what you're worth. Mm. Uh, this idea of what they call uh, a pay being reflecting your marginal productivity. And with that attitude, the, the point then comes down and says, well, is, uh, is there a marginal productivity gap between men and women? Uh, and taking one of those gaps you're talking about in a specific area, for example, medicine. And the answer is hands down, no. Uh, there's absolutely no reason why gender should have any impact on somebody's skill as a doctor or for that matter skill as a nurse um but but we still see these gaps persisting and the reason is because the theory itself is bollocks uh the the the, if you want to find any real basis on which you get a differentiation in income uh apart from you know the worker and capitalist bit which is the we should talk about as well in this conversation uh it comes down to hierarchy it's a position in your hierarchy, and how, and and uh, the, the best work I've seen done on that is by the uh, Canadian economist Blair Fix, where he simply reinterprets all the. He, he tried to make sense of all the income distribution data, both inside companies, uh, between nations, inside nations, and using every metric he looked at. The only one that made any sense was the scale of the hierarchy somebody is in. How many layers are there? between the bottom and the top level and where do you sit in that layer, that overwhelmingly determined not just um, uh, the income gaps between one class and another, but the income uh, earned by the the, uh, top executives versus those by the bottom employees. So in that sense, it says, well, uh, being in the right part of a hierarchy matters and bang, we come back to the sexism in human society that right. the men tend to dominate the hierarchy. Yeah, but I mean, uh, no surprise that people at the top of that hierarchy are any more than people at the bottom. But whether the, you know, why, why can't a woman be at, be at the top other than the fact that historically they haven't? If we were starting from scratch now and building that hierarchy today, there's no reason why a woman wouldn't be at the top rather than the man. Well, I know some organisations where that happened, and I might just say on that basis, I, um, I uh, express some of my cynicism here, what it meant we got female sociopaths at the top of organisations <laughs> rather than male sociopaths. Um, so it didn't actually improve things for people down below them in the hierarchy. Mm. Uh, but nonetheless, it can happen. But I think then we just come down to it. It's, it's, this, this is uh, 
simply the biological fact. Uh, women are the ones who reproduce, men don't. Uh, we have never worked out a way to say that the men are going to carry the, uh, the, the child-raising burden to the same extent the women do. I know your family is rather different on that front. Uh, you, you are that. You're, you know, you, you, That's because I'm not because that you, bright. I'm a my wife. Well, you works. do a bit more. You, you, would do, you are the guys at home most of the time. time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, we yeah. have turned things around in this family. That's true. But what? Yeah. Are, but why are women working? Why still, uh, even though we've had this rise in education, why are women predominantly, and it is more than half of all women, mm. are working in the public sector rather than the it's, private sector? Why is that happening? Well, it's quite possibly just because, again, the public sector is going to be more flexible in terms of, of, of things like maternity leave, yeah. uh, taking leave, making allowances for that. There's a reason the public sector has at least to make to do to give more than just uh, you know a verbal nod to principles of equality and so on. If you don't if you don't uh, meet up to them, then you find yourself being criticised before Parliament, that's rather more effective than, a, than, a, uh, than what you can impose in terms of pressures on a private organisation. So they're more likely if society, as has happened over the last 30 or 40 years, says we have to be ensuring equality of opportunity, uh, then it's going to be more firmly practised in the public sector than it is in the private sector. And the answer to that equality of opportunity very often is to say, well, we need to make sure that more people are educated. And we've done a lot on that since the 1980s, haven't we? Uh, no, so- we've gone bloody backwards, pardon well, me. Being well, yeah, cynic- well, yeah, except more people are going off and getting a university degree, whether it's uh, devalued those university degrees, I'm, uh, you know, the d- well, jury I'm, is I'm out. Firmly in the, I'm firmly in the camp that it's devalued those degrees because what we've really been doing is using using universities as a form of child minding to hide the hide the level of youth unemployment because it, if you go back to the, 90, the, the, the the breakdown date for me in terms of the capacity of capitalism to generate full employment is 1973 and it's, it's striking how dramatic the change was in that particular year uh, to take the, of course the one i know best being australia being my home country unemployment went from about one and a half percent to five at that period and from that time on gradually uh the notion of what used to be full employment was anything below uh, 2%, well, even even 2% was seen as a bit high. And from that point on, 5% was seen as full employment. So there's a real structural shift in capitalism from that point forward. And that's also coincided, of course, with the pressures to try to achieve gender and other forms of, of pay equality. Yeah. And, it, and there's education and education, isn't there? Because for all the education that's available, we're still being governed by senior ministers who went to Eton. So we still have this uh, position of privilege <laughs> yeah. in the UK. But what about... Uh, Come back to hierarchy. Back to hierarchy again, absolutely. But that, but that's just inherent, isn't it? I mean, over time, you can presumably knock down that hierarchy. It's just that it takes time. Because no, what you're I talking about is a cultural thing, isn't it? No, no, no. This is actually an important point. Again, I highly recommend people to read Blair Fix's work on this stuff. Blair's publishing a, a, a blog. I can't, off the top of my head, pull up the name of the blog, but I'll do that while I, when you're chatting again, I'll, I'll type into <laughs> the computer and get uh, get his website but he's found that the, in, in that sense hierarchy is the is the most persistent and perennial feature of uh, of human society because we wouldn't have human societies on the scale that we have uh without hierarchy and the, the title of the uh of blair's uh blog post by this is all one word economics from the top down dot wordpress.com and it's brilliant research. And what, what he's found is that hierarchy is an organising principle which goes right back to the beginning of, uh, of, of, of agrarian societies and even to some extent in pre-agrarian societies in human history. We wouldn't actually have um, 
anything other than small crowd, uh, gatherings of about 150 people maximum unless we had hierarchy. And this applies whether you're talking about a slave society, which is the ancient Romans and Sumerian societies, or you're talking Middle Ages with peasants and, and feudal lords, or you're talking capitalism now, or for that matter, you were talking socialism under the under the Soviets. Mm. So the hierarchy that essential, you cannot get rid of hierarchy. Really? And the can we can no, we no with te- can we with technology though? I wonder. I mean, has has that situation changed? Because hierarchy is there just because you've got large numbers of people, and you've got to try and. S- You've got to sort them out in some way, haven't you? So you've got to have people managing, and then you've got to have people managing the managers. But I just wonder with the technology whether that changes, whether we're going to have a more egalitarian society. I, I just think of my own experience, where I was, since I've worked in corporate life for a long time, mm, and now I'm yeah. freelancing, and I work with a variety of companies with people at different levels. There's no sense of hierarchy in my business because there's only me, and I'm working within. You know, other organisations where you know I'm working across that hierarchy. I don't know if if everyone was just interplaying online somehow, just getting jobs done. Whether the very nature of the the internet would sort out that ability for large quantities of work to be done without that sense of hierarchy that you're talking about. Oh, my dear mate, I'd hate to tell you you're 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 dreaming a neoclassical dream there. Um, <laughs> Occasionally, I make these mistakes. <laughs> you do. Um, that that's in some ways, if you look at neoclassical theory, they can't understand why corporations exist in the first place. Mm. Um, the whole idea that a firm exists is a puzzle for them. The whole theory that uh, the Ronald Coase's attempts to explain why do we have a system in a market economy which is hierarchical, uh, when of course it should all be a basis of com- competition and. And uh, the, the neoclassical vision of the world is a whole bunch of perfectly competitive firms. The perfect, of course, being one of those totally imperfect words, a piece of pejorative language used as a statement of, of fact in economics. Um, but they, 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 they would imagine that you should have a, you know, rather than having a huge corporation, uh, uh, you know, like General Motors used to be, where there's a, uh, a set of bosses, uh, a set of people working in marketing, a set of people working elsewhere, all following orders. They should all be supplying those services as a competitive uh, firm mm. to each other, and it all should be mediated by price. And what we find instead, it's mediated by hierarchy. Um, and partially, this is just the sheer scale of human operations. So, if you want to, for example, maintain the borders of the Roman Empire, it's rather it's 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 rather easier to have a coherent policy if there's a hierarchy than if you have a bunch of perfectly competitive uh, uh, centurions <laughs> trying to maintain the little, the little bunch of a hundred soldiers. So, the, I'll the, go and get killed for less money than the. Uh, that's right. I'll be a I'll be a cheaper <laughs> slaughter on the German front. Yeah, yeah. Or um, maybe if you're smart, you'll go. Now I'm going to charge more to be killed than. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and therefore, I don't get chosen. That would be the logical way, wouldn't it? But I mean, if yeah, with yeah, it, yeah. that's a Russell Crowe approach yeah. <laughs> with this with this hierarchy, though. I mean, so that I mean, if 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 we're stuck with it, then the issue becomes. What's the difference in price between the person at the top and the person at the bottom? Yeah, yeah, and and, and that's the issue that I think we, we need to look at. It's, it's if you look at the, the all these various things, the gender gap, and we've done a lot about that in in terms of. Um, uh, removing the enormous barriers that used to exist. I'll give my favourite example at the front. My mother and father both met when they were working in the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. And uh, w- when they got married, the law or the rule within the Commonwealth Bank is the woman had to resign. Yeah, I remember you saying okay. that before. And that was yeah. just what my mother did. Now, 1952, there she yeah. was, got married, bang, uh, left and became a housewife. Australia has moved on a bit since then, hasn't it? Just a little bit. I'm thinking... 
<laughs> I thought I'd lost you for a second. I did say just a little bit. No, no, so, no, okay. okay. <laughs> I, I think actually one of my one of my good mates back in Australia makes a very reasonable point that that, that should, what should have happened, if you look back at the 1950s household, and again, this is a, being the, the generational issue, I can uh, make, that, make that span, uh, though you had one person working and the other compelled to stay at home, uh, the standard of living in terms of the uh, quality of life you could have was different, of course, in terms of the technology and energy consumption we've gone from in those mm. days. But it, was, it, it wasn't an impossible life by any means to be a sole income owner, paying for a mortgage, um, raising, getting the money to pay for the family and so on. It was feasible. Now you need two to do it. Because, yeah. as, as, well, of course, as, that's made the problem worse as well, hasn't it? Because you can have two people on low wages. The, the, the different, yeah. differential what between those two happened, people on yeah. low wages is far greater than two people on high wages in, yeah. in, in the one household. And, and what you've got is that for people at the bottom of the hierarchy, again, uh, the salaries haven't risen. Mm. Uh, again, again, 73 to 75 is another important point in sort of uh, turning points in capitalism because up until that period, uh, wages were rising at the same rate as labor productivity. Now, labor productivity is one of those words I hate because it's it's not a real not a real measure. Is labor productivity is the ratio of the GDP to the population, and that's the, that is actually the definition of labor productivity, and it therefore makes people think that the way to make the economy grow faster, to make people more productive, it's got bugger all to do with people's productivity. When I do the analysis in terms of energy, that ratio labor labor productivity ratio actually tells you the ratio of the energy throughput of machinery to the energy throughput of unskilled workers. Mm. And that's been rising, of course, over time. But in fact, the, 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 that has got nothing to do with the income that comes back to the worker. It's totally divorced from whatever their own productivity is. So we have weakened the bargaining power of workers yeah. uh, by increasing how many workers there are. At the same time, we've had that the debt bubble, which has been, this is where my own uh, research provides a contribution. Um, there's, I, when, I, when I look at the world in, in, a, in a social class terms, in terms of workers, capitalists and bankers, which is the way I analyse the social breakdown uh, or social division, then as the level of private debt rises, and this is a, a, a dynamic out of a complex system, when I define the economy at the aggregate level just in terms of the wages share of GDP, which gives you income distribution, the employment rate, which gives you the effective level of economic activity, how many workers are needed given the uh, uh, how many how many part much population is actually needed for a job in the production system, and then the private debt to GDP ratio, and I have in that model where the debt is just used to finance investment by corporations, so no borrowing by workers, and it's all about building productive capacity. So there's no Ponzi elements to it all. Mm. As the debt level rises, the share of workers falls. It is an income distribution dynamic in a capitalist economy with finance. It's the workers who pay for a high level of private debt. And so you put that on top as well. And the, the hierarchy effect that, that Blair talks about, this effect of a, a complex system dynamic out of capitalism, uh, that it's it, what determines the level of economic activity. And the person who first got this right was actually Karl Marx, even though he got most things wrong. Um, the thing that determines the level of economic activity is the level of investment by capitalists. That level of investment by capitalists then gives you sort of is based on their their rate of return. And if you if you presume it's a simplifying assumption, which I'm happy to make when it actually is simplifying rather than fantasy, is there's some rough level of rate of profit that is the point at which capitalists are willing to invest everything they earn as as investment. 
below which they'll pay off debt, above which they've got to borrow money to do more investment, then that target rate of return for capitalists sets the economic activity of the economy. Mm. Then have two other social classes, the remainder of the income goes to workers or bankers. Now, it doesn't matter to the capitalist who gets it. So as you get an increasing amount of debt accumulated, if there's a series of booms and busts, as we've seen leading up to the, the Minsky moment of 2008, as that debt level rises, because you've got to service that debt as a capitalist, more of the remainder of GDP, apart from your profit share, goes to servicing the banks and less goes to workers. Yeah. So that, to me, is the major factor that's, that's caused the level of inequality since 1973, which was actually the first major debt uh, credit crunch in capital. And yet the argument which is given time and time again, perhaps by those people who've got their fingers in that financial pie, mm-hmm. is that, no, if you push up the uh, the incomes of, of workers, then uh, it uh, reduces the profitability of companies. Uh, no, it reduces the profitability of banks, and that would bank, be a damn yeah. good idea. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, uh, we, we, that, that, that to me, if, if the only thing I think we can really attack with, no, ch- no chance in hell of changing hierarchy. We'll get back to your fantasy later, if you like, because <laughs> it is an intriguing fantasy. Mm. Uh, but the one thing we could do is reduce the level of private debt, and that would increase the workers' share, which would do a go a large way to chuck closing all the gaps we're talking about. The other argument you hear, of course, is, well, we've got to keep uh, wages low because that, strangely, and there's a big leap of faith here, improves productivity because people have to work harder to be able to earn the money that they need to be able to uh, afford the lifestyle they want, such as surviving. And here's one of the interesting paradoxes in capitalism – why was it that the spinning jenny was invented in Scotland, for uh, rather than, for example, mm. France? Yeah, and, we, and, and we've uh, talked about we talked about this. It was be- yeah. because and the reason is because wages were too, too higher, high. so there yeah. was a strong motivation for somebody to invent a way of getting more um, spare, more uh, yarn out of one yeah. worker, which yeah. is where the first spinning jenny, which I think had six spindles rather than one, was invented. And then, of course, the mechanisation with coal, originally with water power, and then. Uh, then it was steam power, yeah. uh, meant the industrialisation of Scotland. The spinning so low wages stop innovation, is, is, is in Exactly, effect, high wages actually encourage it. And that's um, possibly yeah. where we are now, which is why we're not yeah. seeing productivity increase and we're not seeing a great deal of innovation. You've got to see these things in a dynamic sense. The neoclassical way of thinking, which we fall into so easily because it's become just part of the imprimatur of human human thinking, uh, the supply and demand curve uh, with, with the time playing nowhere on the axes. It's the time pressure. Uh, that that gets that, that pushes innovation, and that innovation is what drives the overall level of wealth. So high wages, paradoxically, can be. And if you, I don't think wages when when you know when you when you get to the stage they instantly bankrupt the bankrupt the capitalists. But a higher level of, of of wages and pressure on wages is a good reason for capitalists to invest that time working out a new form of technology to replace machinery with labour. And when you do that, because machines can handle more energy. Um, there's no limit to the machinery. The limit is the energy you can supply in. Mm. Whereas for workers, given more energy, it doesn't matter. Let's get fatter. Uh, it, it doesn't. It doesn't <laughs> increase the amount of of spinning they can do to to give a, your your spinner two and three times as much food. Mm. Um, so so there is a the, the encouragement to innovation actually comes out of high wages, not low. And the, the other question is, you know, on low wages, how much of that actually just get, gets transferred from the uh, from the private sector to the public sector with with benefits. So if, you, if you're a low-paid worker, you get housing benefits, you get income support, you get child tax credits. In fact, in the UK, uh, the government spends uh, more than a quarter of all it's spending on welfare. That includes pensions. So if you added pensions and payments made to low-income earners, it's 120 for 
billion for pensions, 70 billion for uh, benefits for working people on low income, um, then, you know, that's basically add those two together. And then basically a third of it, third of all that money goes to people of working age on low income. These are people working, but we mm. are, the state is subsidizing uh, uh, their existence in a way. So it's subsidizing those companies that are paying those low wages. So when we get something cheap from Amazon, well, we're also paying for it indirectly through taxes, aren't we? Yeah, and that and that again is a is, is something which is likely to lead to less innovation over time. I mean, Amazon has obviously uh, done very well out of that in its own innovation, but the, the, there's a there's an advantage to having a, a society with a with a rel- with pressure on wages all the time, which then means you've got pressure on innovation for capitalists, and you get this this you know positive feedback, the predator prey dynamics of capitalism, which incidentally, in which case, when you look at the mathematics of the workers are the predators and the capitalists are the prey, but that is what partly gives you the encouragement for technological advance over time, and that's what we need to get a high level of overall income, uh, irrespective of the distribution of that income. Um, and letting and letting too much of it go to rentiers, which is where you've got you know money going to banks and money going to landlords. That is the unproductive stuff. Which actually, if you give, look at the history of economics, that's what Ricardo was mainly attacking uh, with his argument for comparative advantage. It was really uh, a sleight of hand about uh, about trade. His main argument was, and you can find this in, in the um, in principles of political economy. He said that uh, uh, his the, the capitalism effectively can continue growing so long as money goes to capitalists rather than landlords. So he was trying to mm. find a way to reduce the, reduce the corn prices, uh, which would have no effect on workers because they've got to be paid the means of subsistence in his model. Uh, but the extra money that was now going not going to landlords would go to capitalists and there'd be more innovation and you get a longer period of growth. And the same thing comes out of the physiocrats as well. So um, And Adam Smith for that matter. So we've lost that whole, whole idea of the emphasis in the early economists on the need to get more to capitalists and less to rentiers. Instead, we've let, uh, in, in the name of capitalism, we've let rentiers take over the system. And in that case, they're parasites. They, no, they're not ones who innovate. They, they're not under that pressure to innovate. And all the stuff we're doing, as you mentioned beforehand, income supports for, that, for low-income workers, is removing that pressure for innovation, which is the one thing which gives capitalism a claim to be the best social system humans have invented uh, after the early Cro-Magnon days uh, because it gives that innovation and that's the defining feature of the human species. Right. But, I mean, the argument you often hear, because you, what you're leading to here then is saying, well, let's push up minimum wages. But if you, yeah. if, uh, the argument's <clears throat> often given on minimum wages is, well, if you, uh, you know, w- w- would you rather have a, a job at this rate or have no job at all? If you uh, if you push the wage, wages too high, then the argument is given that then the company becomes inefficient so it doesn't employ people. But it could also equally be uh, that the wages become so high, the company is forced to innovate, and it doesn't need those people. It makes the money uh, through uh, through mechanisation. Yeah, and then that's within in that sense. That's what they've got no job at the end of it. Well, absent the fact we're running into ecological limits of the planet, we'll probably run right past them, and it's currently consuming our way through our sustainability. That that uh, you know what uh, Gormel called cowboy capitalism uh, period when you were way 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 below the restraints of the planet. That pressure for innovation is the thing which gives you the advantage in capitalism overall. So you don't want to uh, you know, just put up the prices and, and cause a collapse in the system. You want to, you want to put pressure on, on the income share going to workers while putting pressure on capitalists to innovate as well. And in that sense, the countries which have done best in over the last 30 or 40 years, countries like Singapore. And I still vividly remember, I think, I think it was in 1977 or 1978, Lee Kuan Yew, 
unilaterally announced a 20, I think it was a 27% increase in wages across the board in Singapore. And if you couldn't pay it, tough shit, you had to shut down. Now, partly that was to drive Malay employee, uh, employees out of Singapore. I won't leave that little detail out. But the result was a, a dr dramatic increase in the already impressive innovation and, uh, and industrialization of Singapore. So, mm. uh, so there are paradoxes in, in the way we think when you start thinking in a dynamic sense rather than an equilibrium one. And I guess even without, even you know, not considering that innovation argument, you are going to see a, a shift in the distribution of income as well, aren't you? So if, if wages go up at restaurants, for example, restaurant bills are going to go up, uh, but that's only going to afford those people who can afford to eat at restaurants. Uh, you know, people who work in restaurants probably don't eat at restaurants. Their wages go up. Uh, everyone else has to pay a bit more to to eat out. And that's sort of like equalising uh, the income a little bit, isn't it? Well, if you, and, and this is Henry Ford again. If you look back at Ford's, and there's many negative things about Henry Ford, but one of the positives was he wanted his workers to be able to afford his own product. Mm. And, uh, and that's, then he paid the highest wages going. And at the same time, to do it, to, to, to do it you, you, he forced competition on his remaining rivals. And over time, the price of the Model T Ford actually fell quite dramatically. I think it went from almost $800 pounds to about $800 to about $200 over that period because the, the mechanization you know, tricks he was bringing in, the production line and so on, which he was the innovator of, all those things meant that his per unit cost dropped dramatically, even though he was paying workers much higher wages. So um, uh, yeah, we, we, I think if we just get rid of the confusion that the marginal productivity theory throws in and think in terms of both hierarchy and innovation, we get a much better handle on how to, how to reduce the impact of those um, you know, gaps that are always going to be there for, for structural reasons, both age gaps and, and, and gender gaps, and still produce a more comfortable standard of living. Because if you go back to the 50s, people, even though they're worried, they're, the whole issue of, of uh, sexism and, and so on rose from that period on, uh, people weren't worried about, uh, you know, zero contract hours, mm. uh, uh, low-paid wages mean you've got to have three jobs, et cetera, et cetera. No, it's the uh, era when we'd never had it so good. We were at that stage. We did, yeah, yeah. and we've lost that. And I think uh, this is partly the debt bubble that's that's that has caused that complex system of redistribution of income. Um, but it's also the the lack of innovation that's come forward and the amount of the money that's been claimed by the rentier side of human society rather than by the innovators. If the answer is to push up uh, minimum wage, uh, and I guess it's, I mean, we're <clears throat> talking relatively small differentials here, so maybe that's that part partially explains what I'm about to ask you. But if you look at the the the, the Gini coefficient, which is the sort of the measure of the spread of income. Uh, if you look at the, the minimum wage in Canada, it's uh, in US dollars, according to the OECD, it's about $9.50. In Australia, it's over 12 The UK is halfway. Well, it's a, a little over $10. $10. If you look at the, the Gini coefficient, Australia actually gets a worse score than Canada. So is it just minimum wage or is it tax? Because another way of looking at it is the countries that have got a low Gini coefficient, Iceland, Denmark, Norway, they have a, a much higher tax. I'll give you some figures on that. If you look at the tax wedge, as they call it, which is the uh, combined government income as a percentage of wages, for those who are earning the most, 70% over the average wage, in Australia and the US, uh, they pay 34% in tax. In Denmark and Norway, where I've said the Gini coefficient is so much better, they pay 42% tax, 42% 
versus 34%. Now, that is a big difference. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the wage differential is far less in those countries. Yeah, and at the same time, you have lower costs for uh, public services. So transportation is much cheaper in uh, the Netherlands, for example, than it is in the UK. So even though you're paying a higher amount to your in in taxes, uh, the, the the transportation and other other costs that you face are tr- significantly lower, and people seem a lot happier uh, about the income distribution and and their disposable income in the Netherlands in general than now in the UK. So. Mm. So what about the economic theory then, getting back to that, this mm. idea that, you know, you are paid what you're worth. If you're underpaid, no. you're just going to look for another job. Yeah, it, it, it's totally fallacious. Um, there's no way that the people at the top of a hierarchy are paid what they're, what they're worth. They're paid the, the position in the hierarchy. No. And that's what Blair Phipps' research has done a, a brilliant job. And they in, got there out of, out of opportunity and prejudice and culture uh, I, I guess it's circumstance, isn't it? Well, it's all sorts of things. Mean, again, this this is a, a question: who rises at the top of a hierarchy? And uh, yes, sometimes talent will be part of it, and obviously that's that's important. Sometimes also sheer sociopathy is part of it. And if we do a personality profile of people who get to the top of organisations versus those in the middle, you find a much higher instance of narcissistic personality disorder and other wonderful personal traits that you don't want to have uh, in control. So it's a question of how do you avoid that happening when a hierarchy actually encourages it in the first place. Yeah. And then, uh, of course, we've got all these abuses as well, which, I mean, it seems clear, doesn't it? Apart from increasing minimum wage, you've also got to stop perpetuating the problem. So we have a zero-hour contract. In 2011, there were 200,000 people on zero-hour contracts in the UK. Five years later, it was 750,000. So uh, we've had this big emergence of the gig economy paying unsustainable wages to keep prices down under the argument from these companies that they are market disruptors. What I don't get is how does that happen? Why do investors support businesses with a model that is so flawed? Surely you can see through all of that and go, well, this isn't going to last 10 years because you can't keep on paying people at such a low wage. Yeah, I know. It, it's and again, this is where a sense of of, of, of some sort of sense of social responsibility uh, is is an important element of a functional society. When you get to the stage where the, the vast majority of people, which are the working the workers, make up, of course, the vast majority, uh, face absolute insecurity, and in fact, the risks of capitalism have been passed on to the workers. Because mm. if you have a if you required a minimum of four hours, which used to be the situation, you couldn't have a part-time worker called in for work unless they were guaranteed to get four hours pay, which made it worth the while to get there. And you're talking, say, a restaurant, and they said, oh, okay, you get there and there's not enough customers, you can go back home again. The risk of capitalism is passed from the work, from the capitalist to the worker. Now, that's just not, that, 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 isn't, that isn't on the, uh, <coughs> pardon me, that, that isn't on the marketing leaflet for capitalism. Mm. Capitalism is supposed to be placed where the capitalists take the risk and they're best rewarded for taking the risk. If they can pass the risk onto the worker instead, yeah. you have a society which is heading towards pitchforks. That's the big shift, actually, isn't it, when you think about it in, in almost every uh, walk of life. You can think the risk is being passed back to the user pays type. Yeah, that's right. User pays type, like the type of approach in a, in a way. Yeah, and uh, that's and that's and that we're seeing, look, look at the, the revolts we're seeing around the planet right now. I mean, the extent to which there is violence from the people at the bottom of the social hierarchy uh, is, is quite is quite remarkable. And 
this is what's been missed out. Uh, the, the weakening of your trade union power, the fact that the trade unions no longer have any real existence anywhere, uh, the people work have to bark on their own against a hierarchy which is far larger than them, et cetera, et cetera, You're getting zero-hour contracts, all this nonsense about people having, what do they call those jobs when kids get don't get paid? They call them... Um, jobs in McDonald's? Oh, no, where they don't get paid. No, they do get paid in McDonald's. Where they don't get paid. No, no, I'm thinking about the... Oh, it's, oh it's, it's like a work experience type thing. Work experience um, yeah, type yeah. thing. I forgot what they given yeah. a particular formal name for them. Um, yeah. All this stuff, the risk has been passed on to the person at the bottom of the hierarchy, and that's showing that you know, we, we, we need countervailing force against those hierarchies, and that, again, is left out of the neoclassical way of thinking. But there's no need for countervailing force when you have the price mechanism. Uh, I'm sorry, there is. And mm. you know, abolishing trade unions, we're getting zero-hour contracts, uh, uh, the, the stuff where skids have to work for free to be... Um, uh, uh, it, it is just a, a I remember. Situation. I remember in the in the seventies. Uh, sorry, the eighties. Mm. This would have been. I was uh, looking for jobs. I was living in the north of England, and if someone wanted to interview you, they would pay your train ticket down to London and pay you an allowance for lunch to go for the interview. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's a big shift to the way companies operate these days, isn't it? Yeah, and and that it said that it's the excessive power now of the hierarchy against the uh, the disorganised. So yeah. back to your fantasy again. Uh, could we ever get to the stage where we're all in disorganised small groups? Um, that to me, in, mm. in some ways, is a, is an ultimate ambition of a human species that is going to have a sustainable culture um, over the long term if we get through the ecological crisis, because. As, as a species, we're most comfortable in a group of, of 150 or less. That's what's called the Dunbar number. Uh, 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 the, the number of inter-human relationships we can actually handle maxes out at about 150. That's a lot more than it does for chimpanzees, which is about 20 or 30, uh, and for other members of the simian species. But that's how we survive. Uh, we've had, we, we can relate to 150 people. Uh, without hierarchy... There could be no organisation bigger than about 150 or 200. So hierarchy lets you combine many, many more people together and and you know, bring about the complex societies in which we're part of. But they become actually antithetical to that that human feeling of you, know, you want to bond with 150 people. Uh, if anybody hasn't read this, I highly recommend reading Nelson Mandela's autobiography, A Long Road to Is it Long Walk to Freedom? Yeah, I think that's the title. And in that, he explained what it felt like to be a member of, of the, I think, the Zosa tribe. And he said he thought there's nothing better in the world than being a member of that tribe. And the thing was because in those small tribal communities, the level of bonding, the level of friendship, uh, the, the, the intensity of relationships, uh, when the society is sustainable and let them to bring breakdown pressure, that's an incredibly affirming thing for the human species. And we've lost that in this modern hierarchical society in which we live. Right. And, so, so you're saying that we could live without hierarchy? Because I, that... I, I think we should make it an ambition, but we can only do it to get to the stage where all production is say, taking place in von Neumann machines off planet. <laughs> uh, you know, oh, that, good lord! We well, seem to be starting to extend on I'm, I'm sci-fi. Long way ahead of you. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, we're out of time. We can't really embellish that point any further. But yeah, I guess to, just one final point then on that. Before we get to that, the hierarchy, we've talked about the need to uh, reduce the gap and. Uh, and obviously, wage bargaining is a big part of that. I mean, the, uh, the, mm. the the removal of the union movement has probably been perhaps out of more than anything we've spoken about today is perhaps the uh, the biggest influence on all of this. 
And neoclassical economics played a vital role in destroying the union movement because they, I know from having been raised in this particular religion uh, that people, that the economists believe there should be no trade unions because they, they put the marginal, the price of labour above the marginal product. Uh, the mm. Destroying the union movement was a major part of relieving the level of unemployment and, and inequality and social breakdown that we have today. We'll leave it on that point. Thank you, Steve. Catch you again next week. Okay. Uh, next week, we are going to look at what are called externalities in economics. These are factors that cost you or benefit you, for which you've made no contribution or for which you bear no blame. Can we cost more of these externalities? And should we? For example, if there's a, a new railway station that pushes up your house price because it's close by, should you see all the benefits of that? Or if a, a new airport pushes prices down because of aircraft noise should you get compensation and what about public services if you use them more than most does that mean you should pay more Uh, we'll look at that question of whether we can price in externalities whether technology enables us to do more with that sort of thing Uh, we'll look at that next week on the debunking economics podcast with professor steve keen i'm phil dobby we'll see you then thanks for listening 